Welcome to the Federalist Outpost. So I've had a few comments lately about communism and socialism, and, and the comments have been that communism is a form of government and socialism is an economic system. And the concern is, is that I've conflated the two, that when we talk about modern socialism, we're really talking about an economic policy and not a political policy or a political party the way that the Soviet communists were. And I don't agree. And so let me, let me tell you a little bit about why I don't agree. And let's talk about the definition of modern socialism. Now, I'm doing this as a, as a half episode, and I'm doing this in between sections two and three of the Communist Infiltration of the United States series, because it's important to understand where it is that we're seeing this infiltration and where it's coming from. Because it's not as though the Soviet communists from Russia are over here running around with their red flags with the hammer and the sickle on it. All of this has been rebranded. But with the rise of Bernie Sanders and this organization called the Democratic Socialists of America, which Ocasio-Cortez is a member of, which the Nevada Democratic Party is now under the control of, we've seen this rise of socialism, the political body, not the economic theory, but the, the political belief system that is associated with the economic theory, but is much more akin to communism than it is to anything else. Well, to go back a little bit here, when I was taught in school about communism and socialism, I, I was going through school in the 90s. And my middle school social studies teacher taught us that communism was a type of government, um, a failed type of government in which no one owned anything and the state controlled everything. Conversely, socialism was taught as, as an economic policy. And when I was in middle school and then in high school later, it and actually in college too, but it was taught that socialism was more akin to FDR's New Deal. So Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s, in which he was trying to lift the United States out of the Great Depression by finding public jobs, finding an opportunity for public grants to come from the federal government to sort of spur the economy back into existence. And that is what socialism was uh, as it was taught to me. But those definitions fit the 1930s really well. They don't fit the 2020s very well. And frankly, they don't fit the early 20th century when socialism really became a thing. The original socialism definitions were much closer to what we see today in the political socialism definitions. So when we were taught about Soviet communism, it was a totalitarian regime. That, that's what my middle school teacher taught it to us as is this political and, and totalitarian government. And for many years under Joseph Stalin, it was. And, you know, Stalin was in control from the 1920s through the early 1950s. And during this whole period of time, Joseph Stalin was the end-all be-all of the Soviet Communist Party. He was everything to the Communist Party. If he said something, it happened. Anything that he said, his edicts, his whims, the, the laws that he felt should be appropriate were carried out with this brutal and harsh kind of manic efficiency by the rest of the government. After Stalin's death, though, there's this change in the Soviet Union that the historians call the thaw, like, you know, ice melting, the thaw. And this thaw was a liberalization of the controls 
over the people that the government had previously had uh, a pretty tight control of. And it was helmed by Nikita Khrushchev. And, you know, he becomes the head of the USSR by becoming the head of the Central Committee. Now, the Central Committee was essentially this small group of men that were in charge of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party theoretically would have appointed who they wanted as committee members, and, and these committee members would have a head. And Khrushchev was the head during the mid-1950s on into the 1960s. And during this period, the draconian, if you remember our earlier episodes, the draconian policies of Stalin were relaxed quite a bit. There weren't quite the same level of executions, and there wasn't quite the same vigorousness in the elimination of dissidents that there had been under Joseph Stalin. But this party, this central committee, was essentially the entire government all in a nutshell. You see, the Soviet government had a congressional system, closer to a parliamentary system. And even though it was a facade, it was what they claimed to be some form of light democracy. And it was called the Supreme Soviet. It was organized with an upper and a lower house. And they pretty much only rubber stamped the things that the Communist Party had already spent all their time putting together. So the, the Communist Party would put together a platform and they would vote on it internally. And then that platform and the laws associated with it would then be introduced into the parliament. Parliament would have unanimous consent in passing whatever it is that the Communist Party wanted them to do. But this became a hallmark of the communist system, right? It, it wasn't so much totalitarian the way that it had been under Joseph Stalin, but it was a one-party system. And you see this in modern communist parties such as China with the CCP, where it's really just one party and, and you can vote for whoever you want in the one party, but this one political party controls everything. In the Soviet Union, they controlled the courts, they controlled the laws, they controlled the executive branch, they controlled all three primary components of the government, and they did it in every country that the Soviets were in charge of. Now, economically, the Soviets were socialists as well. They're literally smattering everything all over their propaganda that says socialism. You know, the early stuff that different government bodies were referred to as the socialist this, the socialist that. And their actual practices were socialist as well. And the general concept behind socialist economic policy under communism was that the state would receive all of the profit, all of the gross revenue from everything in the whole country, and then they would redistribute it through essentially government stipends to every member of the country's population. And so you did all your work every day and, and you went to your factory, you went to your farm and these products would go out and be sold and the, the communist government would get it and then they would issue you a, a certain amount of income. Now, today we would call this universal basic income and that's what the, the socialists modernly talk about is this universal basic income. And it's pretty much just taxation without the bureaucracy, right? Because what we have today, the federal government takes measure of everything that, that we all earn, and then they take their cut of it, and then they turn around and they spend it on different public works and things of that nature. But the entire communist Soviet government was functioning on a, a socialist economic system. From an academic and intellectual standpoint, like we talked about in the last episode, everything that the communists did 
was to control critical thinking and control dissidents. And just like a, a game show contest that we're going to talk about in the next episode, unstructured thought and action wasn't just discouraged, it was outright horrifying to the communists. They couldn't control it. So therefore, anything they can't control, any thoughts that they can't control, were a threat. So what they would do in the time was they would either silence it by uh, effectively outlawing certain people or certain thoughts, or by condemning them one way or another to either the Siberian gulags or to, to death under Stalin or effectively to erasure under the later Central Committee. But essentially, this is what we would call in modern times cancellation. And so they would take public figures and they would cancel them in, in Soviet culture on a regular basis. Sometimes these would be artists, sometimes they'd be politicians, sometimes they would be school teachers or professors. Anybody who didn't agree with or didn't espouse the right political beliefs would be subject to cancellation. And the next element here is that personal property, you know, and as we talked about a little bit earlier, personal property under the communist system. Uh, was largely subject to state annexation. Now, that's not to say that the citizens of the Soviet Union did not have personal effects. They had cars, they had houses, they had TVs, radios. They had, they had a full run of different items that were their particular personal possessions. But the property was always subject to this annexation by the, the federal government, by the federal Soviet government, for the purposes of, of essentially putting it to the betterment of the collective, right? And this is a big policy that happens right after World War II, where the Soviets go in and they pillage Germany, Ukraine, and Poland, uh, essentially under the auspices of taking the factories from East Germany or the crops and the food from Ukraine or pretty much everything from Poland and relocating it to Russia so that all of the comrades of the Soviet Union could be benefited by their production. They were going to take all of these great assets and they were going to make sure that everyone reaped the benefits of it because after all, it was the common workers, the, the comrades that deserved the benefits of each one of these different pieces of what was previously private property. So to put all that into a nutshell, it, communism had five different components to it. It was a one-party system where that one party controlled the whole government, every branch of it. Uh, Dissident thought was led to cancellation or incarceration or death, depending on when you had that dissident thought. The state could take your property and your business interests without a good explanation and pretty much just say that they were going to assign it to the collective, the good of, of all of the Soviet citizenry. Fourth element was that your income as a member of the state was entirely derived from government distributions. You were going to be receiving what was effectively universal basic income from the Soviet government. And that was your share of what the greater country had produced. Uh, and the last component is that the state uh, chose the winners and the losers in society. The definition of who the collective was, was something that was changeable. It would be uh, the mainland Russians instead of the Polish or instead of the East Germans or the Ukrainians. It would be certain members of the Communist Party that would be chosen to run these things and derive greater benefits, bigger houses, nicer cars, things like that. These five components are what communism was. And so let's look at modern socialism as embodied in the American political system by the Democratic Socialists of America. 
There was a, a very good 2018 NPR article on who the Democratic Socialists of America were. And this is right after Ocasio-Cortez had won the primary, but before she had won the election. And it's titled, What You Need to Know About the Democratic Socialists of America. And it was written by Danielle Kurtzelben and Kenny Malone. And the authors of the article actually took the time to go through and interview a number of different Democratic Socialist members from different chapters across the country. And Joe Cernelli, uh, was the founder of the West Virginia chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. And he outlined DSA's goals like this. He said, I think we just need to realize that the end goal is, ultimately, like social control of the means of production. You know, we don't just want to improve capitalism. We will ultimately want to get rid of it. The DSA national director, Maria Svart, agreed with that analysis and, and talked about it. She said, we see it, it being capitalism, as fundamentally undemocratic. When it comes right down to it, we believe people need to be able to have a dignified life. I mean, there are certain things which should not be left up to the market. As the DSA sees it, and according to the article, there's, there's essentially two categories of property ownership that are acceptable to them. There's government controlled, which would include utilities, and, and by the way, internet and telephone are considered to be utilities. Um, in the healthcare system and anything else that's sort of got a broad base application. And then the second category is worker owned. So it's a complete elimination of the middle class and, and potentially just a substitution of the upper class. It doesn't elevate the lower class. It just compresses the middle class into the lower class because now everyone is a laborer. Everyone is a worker. And Maria sets it out like this. And she says, Let's say you were negotiating at a bargaining table with workers in a bakery. And the workers said, look, we want more than a quarter of the bread. We want half the bread or, or we want two thirds of the bread. The socialist would say, actually, we want the bakery. We want to control it all for all of our benefit. That is a quote directly from a major party official with the DSA. They're not even hiding it. It is communism. It is let's take private ownership and eliminate it altogether and give it to the collective. It's communism. Now, the DSA is the Democratic Socialists of America, and they, they want to remind you that they're not against democracy and freedom. They just want to change where your income comes from and how much you get. But their definition of democracy isn't your definition or my definition of democracy. And the NPR article talks about it. It says... It's easy to focus on the socialist part here, but the word democratic is also part of the group's name, and members often stress that part of their ideology. They say putting workers in charge of businesses, for example, necessarily makes those businesses more democratic. Now let me read another quote to you, and this one's not from the NPR article. Quote, Only the most ignorant people can close their eyes to the bourgeois nature of the democratic revolution, which is now taking place. Whoever wants to reach socialism by any other path than that of political democracy will inevitably arrive at conclusions that are absurd and reactionary, both in the economic and political sense. You know who said that? Vladimir Lenin. That's right. The guy that started the Soviet Union, whose taxidermied body is sitting in state in Moscow even today, as an example to all good comrades, is the same person who said that democratic socialism is a great idea. 
And he said that in 1905. It was part of his bestseller book, Two Tactics of Social Democracy and the Democratic Revolution, which is still for sale today. And Goodreads gives the book a 3.8 out of 5 stars, if that tells you anything about the state of the, the world right now. But this democratic concept that the DSA proclaims to be approving of isn't the same democracy with two parties. It's a one-party system. So we talk about this first element of communism and the one-party control. And even though DSA's name indicates otherwise, it's actually part of the platform that the Democrats, uh, particularly the DSA Democrats, are pushing right now. And so you can see three different pushes to eliminate second party or the Republican Party right now. And the first one is H.R. 1, which is entitled the For the People Act of 2021. It's cute that they fit the collective for the people concept into it, but it's intended to heavily skew the electorate to the Democratic Party. And they're doing it by changing certain rules inside of voting. The most significant of which, although it's sort of flown under the radar to this point, is the reduction in the voting age from 18 to 16. Now, if you remember the last part of this particular series, I talked to you about how a lot of the educational systems are designed to indoctrinate young students into a particular system of belief. Well, this provision inside of HR1 goes hand in hand with the education modifications that the communists have made. And so if you can vote when you're 16 and you have no life experience at 16, you're going to vote based upon what your teachers at school have told you and based upon what you've talked about at home. And if you haven't talked about it at home, you've certainly talked about it at school. So by reducing the voting age down to 16, they're adding effectively two more years worth of eligible voters, the 16-year-olds and the 17-year-olds who can come in and they can vote presumably for the Democratic Party and try to counteract the votes from the older generations that frankly have more life experiences and know better than 16 and 17 year olds. Now this change is, and, and there's a lot more inside of HR1, but this change is intended to solidify control of the House of Representatives and the White House, right? Because there's more Democratic voters and these voters are going to put more members into the House of Representatives, and they're going to make it easier to elect a Democratic president. But the Senate isn't quite like the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives has got 400 and some odd members, and these members are elected by their different districts, and it's easier to get a majority in the House, because uh, those elections occur every two years, than it is to get a majority in the Senate, where only a third of the Senate is ever up for election at any one point in time. So the Senate is a problem for the Democratic Socialists. And what they're going to do is they're going to, under H.R. 51, add the District of Columbia to the Union as a state. This makes the 51st state, but it's got an 80% or more voter registration in favor of the Democrats. So this is going to be a reliably Democratic state, which, by the way, is, is smaller than Manhattan. And these people, these 800,000 people that live in the District of Columbia, are going to get two senators. And these senators are going to be Democrats just based upon the pure numbers of voter registration inside the district. And so 
doing this, the Democrats are going to take, and I should say the Democratic Socialists, are going to take control of the Senate. So now you've got the House, the Senate, and the White House that are covered by H.R. 1 and H.R. 51. We haven't heard much since Biden took office about it, but packing the court was a very common conversation at the end of last year, particularly after Justice Ginsburg's death, and who was a great justice, by the way. I mean, I don't agree with everything that she said. I don't agree with every one of her decisions. But here was a woman who had the courage of her convictions, and she had it from the beginning to the end. And on top of that, this was a woman who, even though she had some fairly extreme views on some things, didn't mind reaching across the aisle to a person like Justice Scalia, who had some pretty extreme views on the other side of the spectrum. This was somebody who could get along with both sides. And, but I digress. The packing the court theory is that if the Democratic Socialists don't get the decisions that they want out of the Supreme Court, they're just going to rig the court. And the Soviets did this, by the way. But what they would do is they would add enough additional members to the Supreme Court so that every one of the votes would favor them. And if they needed to do it in a way that was overkill, you know, adding 15 members to the court, all appointed by a Democratic president and all approved by a Democratic Senate, they could do so. And so now you've got the three branches of government that the Democratic Socialists of America want to take control of. You see two of those major efforts in H.R. 1 and H.R. 51 already underway. And we're not even six months into the Biden presidency. I think packing the court probably shows up when we get closer to September, October, the one-year anniversary of uh, Justice Ginsburg's death. So the next element that we you know, need to talk about, about how socialism and modern socialists are actually communist, is censorship, right? The elimination of critical thought and dissidence is something that the communists did in spades, and it's something in our society we have seen the democratic socialists do in huge droves, right? So it, and even people who used to be on the far left, like Bill Maher from Real Time on HBO, he used to be reliably liberal, and, and you'd only hear him spout off about you know how much he hates people who have religion and things like that. But he said on his March 19th, 2021 show, I swear to God, I don't want to talk about cancel culture and this nonsense every week, but I just think people understand how this is a tsunami and how fast the goalposts change on almost a weekly basis. Literally on the top of my head, I wrote down three things I could think of. Not just what you do now, it's anything you've ever done. Not just what you say, it's now what you listen to. They can catch you for that. What you order, who you say you like, any sort of association, if you retweet something. Critical thinking, likewise, is being canceled just by labeling something as racist. I saw an article a couple of weeks ago that said that math was racist. I don't know how numbers could possibly be racist, and I don't know how 2 plus 2 equaling 4 can be racist, but it was labeled as racist. But all of this cancel culture is really just designed to eliminate dissent. And like we talked about earlier, that was a core component of how the Soviet communists ran their country for 60 or 70 years. Our third element is the annexation of personal property and businesses for the collective good. You know, this has been going on since March of 2020. And 
it may not be the we're taking your business and repurposing it style of annexation, but your businesses have been taken since the COVID lockdowns and repurposed for the collective good. And you see that, you know, we have to close gyms in New Jersey and bars and restaurants and a dozen other types of businesses in places like New York and California, all for the collective good. But then you see people like Governor Gavin Newsom, you know, who closed down all of California, still go to the restaurants that he likes. And so it's not just hypocrisy there, but it is the conversion of private businesses to the collective good. And the collective is this small group of people who are at the very top echelons of what is effectively the Democratic Socialist of America Party or the Democratic Party like Governor Newsom out in California. In the meantime, you don't see the same impact on the big businesses. If you think about Amazon and Walmart since March of 2020, these are two companies that are huge that have had incredible success. They have taken all of the small and medium-sized businesses, their entire group of customers, and essentially gobbled them up because the small businesses aren't open. The malls aren't open. All of these different regular small and medium-sized businesses that we all grew up with weren't allowed to function by law over the course of March 2020 through, at the very least, January 2021 in a lot of places. Places like Michigan, New York, New Jersey, California, Washington State, anywhere where you have a large democratic socialist population and a Democrat in control of the executive branch, you have these closures. The fourth element is the distribution of income through the central government. Well, it, it, this week is a great example as we're going to see the third round of stimulus payments being distributed by the federal government. But conversations about universal basic income or UBI are rampant by DSA, and we're starting to see the structure in practice. We've got food stamps and stimulus payments and unemployment benefits and other programs like this that are intended to get the population dependent upon government pay to survive. It's communism light right now. And at the moment, it's not paid for, right? They're just printing money and handing it out to people. And I don't think anybody is under any illusions otherwise, but it's about to be paid for by the Biden tax hikes. And these tax hikes are going to go after the middle class, the bourgeoisie, as Lenin would call them, and the people who own, manage, and run medium-sized businesses or, or very successful small businesses. And so you're going to see all of the money that these different entities would normally have had for their purposes repurposed to this UBI issued by the federal government to the workers, to everyone that fits under a particular income threshold. And that is a very communist approach to economic policy. The final element of Soviet communism that we see in modern socialism is choosing winners and losers in society. And it's not a merit-based system, but it's an arbitrary attribute system. And it, I mentioned it a minute ago, but a good example of this from the past two months is the Justice for Black Farmers Act. Uh, this is an act which gives people things and property, among other things, based upon the color of their skin. It's flagrant racism in violation of the equal protection clauses of the Constitution, but it's, it's about to be, if it's not already, the law of the land. 
And Section 203 of the Act instructs the USDA to buy farmland at fair market value from farmers and then give it literally for free uh, 160 acres at a time to black individuals who applied to, to get this grant. And the land is transferred to the individual tax-free. So it doesn't show up on your income. This massive 160 acres is an asset that is yours free and clear. And the only qualification is the color of your skin. This sort of arbitrary designation is picking winners and losers. We also see it in the energy industry where fossil fuels are perpetually under the attack of the socialists in favor of renewable energy. Now, renewable energy is a great idea. And, and I've got no problem with it whatsoever. But to come in and cancel the Keystone XL pipeline, and then a month later have the massive failure that was the renewable energy in Texas during the freeze, you get the feeling that this isn't merit-based at this point. That you know, for all the faults and failings of fossil fuels, they're at least stable, steady, and consistent. And maybe this transition over to renewable energies is a bit premature at this point. But again, we've got the socialists picking winners and losers in these different areas. But there you have it. You, you've got modern socialism as the current incarnation of the Soviet Communist Party. I mean, the DSA is actively trying to achieve one-party control. They're actively engaged in censorship and silencing dissent. They're actively annexing businesses and property for the collective good. They're actively distributing income through the federal government. And they're choosing winners and losers in the system based upon arbitrary characteristics and political affiliations. So when I talk about the socialists, the modern socialists, I am talking about the Soviet communists. It's the same ideology. It's the same group of people, group of lemmings that followed Vladimir Lenin off the cliff into Soviet communism and lived underneath the Stalinist regimes to the 1950s and actively repressed their people from the mid-1950s all the way to the late 1980s. So if you have any other comments or, or questions about it, email me. I'd, I'd love the debate about this. Uh, thanks again for listening. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. If you didn't enjoy it, subscribe. If you hated it, subscribe and uh, send me some hate mail because just like this episode, I like responding to stuff. So thanks and you guys have a good one.